All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be at. Today, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians together, and Paul, right now, after grounding us in the gospel in the first three chapters, is giving us a picture of what the church is meant to be. And so he's already used several metaphors in the book of Ephesians to describe the church, like he's called us the new humanity, or the body of Christ, the household of God, the temple and the dwelling place of God. And like I said last week, I don't want us to look at chapters 4 through 6 simply as a list of things we should do. Okay, This is not just simply a to-do list. We tend to become very moralistic, and we look at things that way. But this is really, it's a vision of what the church is meant to be. Not a vision of a perfect, sinless church either, right? We saw that last week. We're going to see that again this week. But it's a church that is growing to be more and more like Christ. And we're going to see Paul is not telling us to become something new, He's telling us to become like who we really are. That we've been granted this identity in the Messiah. And the more we embrace this new identity, the more we are going to look like and act like Jesus. And so far, Paul has focused primarily on the unity of the church. We're meant to be this new identity, not just as individuals, but Corporately, as a whole, we have this identity together. And we saw that at the beginning of chapter 4, starting in verse 4. And I apologize, uh, I don't have any slides today because the internet is down. (laughs) And so all my slides that I had prepared are in my head. And so you can use your Bibles if you have them, or your phone if you you have them, and uh, just stay with me. So back in chapter 4, starting in verse 4, We read this by Paul. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones representing completeness, a wholeness within the body of Christ. And then he goes on and he talks about these diverse gifts that were given, that were actually people that would be leaders within the church, but their purpose is what? To help the body mature into the unity of faith to become more like Christ. So today, Paul is going to continue to encourage this unity through the church putting off the old humanity and putting on the new humanity. And there's going to be a series of Don't do this, but rather do this. And in this, you're going to see this contrast of the old humanity and the new humanity. This is who we were, but now in Christ, this is who we truly are. And I don't think I can overemphasize this enough, that what Paul is describing here is the result of grace. Grace always comes before the behavior change. And we will see in our text today, even as Paul is exhorting the church to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, he is constantly going back and reminding us of the grace that was given to us. Paul is constantly grounding his imperatives, his commands, 
in the grace of Christ. We don't do these things to earn God's favor. We do these things in light of and empowered by God's favor. So with that in mind, let's pray one more time. and We'll dive into this text. Father, would you open up our spiritual eyes? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might see who we truly are in Christ and that we would rest not in our abilities, but in what Christ has already accomplished for us on our behalf. Father, help us to just glory and be amazed and be consumed by the truths of the gospel, by your mercy and your grace that transforms us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the outline. Verses 17 through 24 is basically just Paul saying, laying it out that this is your old humanity. Now this is going to be your new humanity. Shed the old, put on the new. And then verse 25 through actually chapter 5 verse 2 is going to give us some examples of what this looks like. How we walk in love. That's the new humanity. Walking in love, imitating Christ. All right, so starting and picking up in verse 17. Paul writes this. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And we're going to stop there. We're going to, I'm going to read a little bit and talk about it a little bit. We're just going to walk through this real slowly together. Okay, so verse 17, Paul starts the section with this like declaration. And it's very similar to like a king's edict that is meant to impose the king's will on its subjects. It's very strong language here. The word now could actually be translated as therefore. That what he's about to say is very much connected to what he just got finished saying. And so if you recall back in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul is encouraging the church to walk in a manner that is worthy of their calling. And so here he starts off by saying, don't walk like the Gentiles do. Which, wait a second. I mean, isn't Paul writing to primarily Gentile believers? We've been talking about that a lot. Like, isn't he ta- That's who he's talking to. These, these nations that have now trusted in Christ are being brought back into the family of God. And they've been called back in. And, and, and Paul celebrates that. But he call, in chapter 2, verse 11, he calls them uncircumcised Gentiles. But here it seems as if Paul is wanting them to stop thinking of themselves as Gentiles. He's implying, look, you used to be of the nations, but now you are of God's holy nation. You're united to him, and we share in this identity. There's a parallel passage in Colossians where Paul writes this. He says, do not lie to one another. See that you have put off the old self, the old humanity, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, 
circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul is saying, don't walk like the nations. Don't walk like the Gentiles anymore. That's not you. That's not you anymore. You're a different person. In Christ, you are made new. Don't walk like them anymore in the futility of their minds. And he goes on in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're blinded. Their spiritual eyes are darkened and their minds are futile or could be translated empty. So in the new humanity, Christ has opened up our spiritual eyes. In fact, I've heard people as they've shared their testimony with me before how God... Often what I'll, I'll hear them say is that, that God just like woke me up, that God opened my eyes to see the significance of the gospel. And so not only did the gospel strip the guilt of our sin away, but it also strips the power of sin away as well. So instead of having these futile minds that are trapped and hopeless, we now have eyes to see the truth of Jesus. And minds which are constantly undergoing renewal in Christ through the Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 18. The Gentiles are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And this is the same language, again, that's used to describe Pharaoh in the Exodus. This is a hardness of heart that leads to a willful ignorance and a rejection of the truth of God. It goes on in verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so to become callous is to become just no longer having the ability to feel Godly guilt. And you see here, it leads to all sorts of sin. They're they're greedy. They're longing for impurity. And so Paul is painting a picture of the depravity of the Gentiles. Back in chapter 2, he said that by nature they are children of wrath. And I want to point out that this, this is a description of what many would call total depravity. But... This doesn't mean they have an absolute depravity, okay? So there, there's many that in our world that are outside of Christ that have not yet trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they have a decency about them. They, they do many good things because of God's common grace. We're all made in the image of God, and so there is something in us that, that will do good at times. But even those who look good on the outside will one day face Judgment. And Jesus predicted this, and he warns the Pharisees of this very thing. He says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This description of the depravity of the Gentiles is really a description of all of us before we were in Christ. 
through faith. And this brings us to verse 20, where Paul begins to contrast who we were outside of Christ to who we are now in Christ. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned or you now have come to know Christ. Verse 21, assuming that, or it could be translated, surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And so this implies that Paul assumed that those who were reading his letter have heard about the Messiah and they've responded in faith. They've been baptized into him. In other words, Paul assumes that the readers have graduated from the school of the Messiah. But instead of being rewarded a diploma, they've been awarded the gift of new life. And it's not because they've passed some kind of test. It's because Jesus has passed the test and they get his perfect grade accredited to them. Now look at verse 22 to see what we have learned in the school of Christ. There's three things in particular he mentions in the next few verses. Look at verse 22. First thing we've learned in the school of Christ, to put off your, and it's, it's plural, it's y'alls, to put off y'alls old self, old humanity, which belongs to y'alls former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so they were, we've been taught to, to shed, to strip off, to discard the old identity, the old manner of life. The old man is dead and good riddance, right? He was self-destructive and wicked, deceitful. And so we have also been taught, second thing, number uh, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so even though we have this new identity, it doesn't mean that we've completely arrived yet. In Christ, we are being renewed, made new the spirit, in the spirit of our minds. The, the Holy Spirit works in us continuously to, to transform us in our inner man. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is really important. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is reminding us that this inner renewal often comes through affliction. Our trials prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that we cannot fully understand right now. The third lesson we learn in the school of Christ, verse 24, and to put on the new self, the new humanity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so in Christ... We have been and we are being renewed, made into something new. And, I, and it means we're also being restored. And so in the sense that we're being restored into, back into the image that we were always meant to be, the image and the likeness of God. Genesis 1, God created us in 
his image. The new humanity or the new creation is new to us, but it is not new to God. It's, it's a renewed Eden is what it is. God's bringing us back to be a part of a new creation. He's remaking us to be a part of this new humanity. And if you compare the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the New Jerusalem in Revelation, there are a ton of similarities, which is a whole other sermon that we won't go into right now. Paul is using here a clothing metaphor to put off, to shed the old humanity and to put on or adorn this new clothing, this new humanity. It's interesting. There's actually records of ancient baptismal practices of the early church where they would have those who are being baptized remove all of their outer clothing and then uh, as a representation of shedding their old life. And then after they came out of the baptismal waters, they would put on a white robe. You're glad we didn't do this this morning, right? <laughs> but they would put on a white robe representing the, the cleansing that they had just gone through and the new life that they put on, the new humanity in Christ that they're putting on. So next, Paul is going to, to give us several specific examples of what this putting off of the old humanity and putting on of the new humanity looks like just on the street level. And, and this is by no means a comprehensive list. This is just Paul kind of skimming the mountaintops of Christian ethics here. He points out four uh, items, four issues, lying, anger, uh, stealing, and corrupt talk. Those are the four things that he he mentions over the next few verses. So we start with verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so we're supposed to take off the clothing of falsehood. That's our old humanity. Things like being sneaky, lies, half-truths, gossip, slander, exaggerating the truth, spreading rumors, fake news, Conspiracy theories, all those things. Those may have been how we acted in our old humanity, but now in Christ, we are supposed to speak the truth to our neighbors. Which is actually, it's a quote from, he quotes from Zechariah 8.16, which just tells us the ethics of the new humanity are not really anything new. Okay? <laughs> you can find all of these things in the Old Testament. Notice, the reason Paul gives us for being a people who tell the truth to one another is because we are members one of another. So again, we are members of the body of Christ. Paul has unity within the church on his mind in all of these things. And you're going to see that. Paul recognizes that trust is a key element for unity and really relationships in general, right? Nothing breaks trust faster than, than falsehoods. Now, we're going to move on to number two, the second one, in verse 26. And this is interesting. Verse 26 tells me once again that Paul anticipates the church being imperfect, that we're going to slip up at times. We're going to have times where we offend one another. We're going to have times where we are just insensitive towards one another. We're going to have times where we're overly sensitive to one another, which is why Paul writes in verse 26, be angry and do not sin which again is actually a quote from the Psalms. He goes on, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul recognizes that living in a broken world, there's going to be times where 
we get angry. And anger is not always a sin. God gets angry at times. Anger is the natural emotion that we have when we feel like there's been an injustice. In fact, anger is the right response to evil when we see someone we love being harmed. But anger is also dangerous because it can lead us to sin. And Paul warns us, be angry and do not sin. Because when anger causes us to lash out, to hurt others, to break things, to seek revenge, when when anger causes us to become bitter or cynical, or when it causes us to begin to think the worst of people, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, my wife and I, we have made this rule, we made this rule very early on that we, we didn't want to go to bed angry at one another, which means sometimes we would stay up to like 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and and I th- honestly, I think that's a, a pretty good rule. It's, it's served us well over the years. But I think Paul here doesn't simply have arguing at night in mind. The heart behind this is Paul is saying, don't hold on to your anger. Don't let it fester. Think about this. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that unrestrained anger in your heart towards others is the equivalent to murder. And notice the reason Paul gives. He says unresolved anger gives an opportunity to the devil, to the adversary, to the one who wants to divide us, right? Even righteous anger, if it's left to fester, can give the devil an opportunity to tempt us to sin, to become bitter. Satan loves to see a church that's bitter, that's torn apart, that's divided against one another, that's hostile towards one another. Paul's heart here is unity. And when we feel ourselves going down that path, how important it is for us to confess our anger to one another. Because that's where Satan loves to work in our minds when we don't confess because nobody else can see our minds. That's where he gets the foothold, right? But when we confess our sins to one another and we receive grace from one another, things get out in the open and Satan no longer has the same power over us. So confession is important. And then we're going to see later on, as Paul summarizes this whole section, he talks about us being a people who forgive one another because we've been forgiven. How important that is also. Let's move on to number the third lesson, or the, the third item that, that Paul talks about here. Uh, verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And this comes straight from the the Ten Commandments, right? Again, none of these are new. Paul actually expands on it a little bit, though, and he, he says, thou shall not steal. And then he says, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands for this reason, so he can become generous. And so instead of being lazy, we are to live a life of diligent works so that we are able to give more to those who are 
in need. And again, all of these commandments are, are, are given and are geared towards us having this vision of unity within the church where we're taking care of one another and loving one another and, and we create, we're disciplined enough in our lives to create some margin so we can be helpful to those who are in need. Fourth, verse 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So first of all, let me start off by saying, Paul here is not simply condemning you if you allow a curse word to slip out of your mouth when you stub your toe. Okay, That's not Paul's point here. Notice Paul doesn't give us a list of forbidden curse words. Paul is concerned with our unity in our relationships. He's concerned if our words are building one another up or if they're tearing one another down. Are we encouraging one another or are we discouraging one another? Are our words filled with grace and compassion or are they filled with corrupt talk is how he puts it. The Greek word for corrupt here is sapros, which typically refers to like fish or fruit or produce that has been spoiled rotten, diseased. In fact, some of your translations might say, let no foul language come out of your mouth. So there's a few things that are important here to see. First of all, our conversations should be motivated by the desire to build one another up instead of building ourselves up. We're to look at the person that we're talking to as somebody that's made in the image of God who is in need of love and mercy and redemption, just like us. Second, notice the phrase, as fits the occasion. It's important for us to consider the situation, the moment that we're in. If you truly love the person you're talking to, you're going to consider the circumstances and and speak with awareness. We, We can't just say whatever comes to our mind. We should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then third, we see that grace is the goal. And and this isn't Paul just saying, simply saying, be nice. Okay. Paul is saying our words should be a gift to those who we are talking to. That our words should be a reflection of the, the grace that we have received from Christ. And remember, the words that come out of our mouth is only a fraction of what we're actually communicating, right? The tone of our words, our body language, communicates maybe even more than the word. You you can say the same thing, exact same words, but you say it in a different way and with different body tone, and, and, and it means something completely different. For example, I can say, hey, where have you been? And what am I communicating? I'm I'm communicating, I missed you. You're welcome. We we love you. You're accepted. Or I can say the exact same thing like this. Hey, where have you been? And what am I communicating? Yeah, I'm communicating. I'm no longer inquiring, am I? I'm accusing. 
I'm no longer happy to see you and welcoming. I'm annoyed. I'm angry. I'm thinking the worst of you. I'm tearing you down rather than building you up. And again, notice the reason. Every one of these has a reason that Paul gives. Verse 30, Paul gives us the the reason to be mindful of our words. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is actually a reference back to Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah chapter 60, 63, what's happening there is there's a, Isaiah is reflecting on the Exodus, specifically after they had been brought out of Egypt and they began to grumble. They began to complain, the Israelites did. And it says that they grumbled against him and grieved the Holy Spirit. The Israelites had been guided by, it says, and this is going back to Isaiah 63, guided by the angel of the Lord, God's divine presence, and yet they rebelled and they grumbled against him, grieving the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here is using that as an illustration to say, hey, as believers, we are filled with God's divine presence to guide us. And he's saying that it's possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit when our words are corrupt and expressing grumbling hearts which goes along with what Jesus said. What's in our hearts will eventually come out of our mouths. And so we need to be mindful of what we are saying and how we are saying it. And again, Paul's heart in all of this is unity. He summarizes everything. Look at verses 31 all the way to verse 2 of chapter 5. He goes on to say this. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I know it's kind of unusual that I went through verse 2 of the the next chapter, but if you look at almost every commentary groups, those first two verses in with this previous section. Okay, Remember, the the chapter breaks were not in the original text. And this makes sense that these two verses belong to what we just walked through. Paul ends this section with his exhortation, Be imitators of God as beloved children which I think is significant because what Paul is saying when he talks about us being adopted into God's family and he is now our father, he's not simply saying that God's going to take care of us. That's a big part of it. But he has in mind the identity and the responsibility that we have been given as his image bears. He started chapter 4 off how? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And he ends this section by summarizing what that means to be an imitator of God, walking in love, which is what he's been describing for the last chapter, what that looks like, putting off the old and putting on the new. And notice how he ends this section, reminding us once again simply of the gospel. We don't obey these commands to earn God's grace, or his love, he's already given his grace to us. He's already expressed his love on the cross. 
We love because he first loved us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Jesus, the one who loved us so much, he gave himself up for us. Jesus, the one who became a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Everything that we learned in Exodus about the tabernacle points to Jesus, the ultimate offering and sacrifice that gives us access to God's presence. Paul constantly goes back to the gospel. It's what grounds us. It's what empowers us. Let's pray that God would consume us with that truth.